Good morning. Um, some of you know I really love the uh, writings of A.W. Tozer, um, and something Josh said just now um, reminded me. You know, I, I pray for God to uh, give me the Holy Spirit every time I preach, to give me the power, the understanding, the, the ability, you know, uh, that I need to present the gospel, uh, God's word. Um, but A.W. Tozer said something that I, I'd never really had as, uh, you know, thought about as much until he said it, um, which is that it's not just the outpouring of the Spirit on the preacher, it's the outpouring of the Spirit on the congregation, that you need the power of the Holy Spirit to hear every bit as much as I need the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim. And so, you know, my prayer for each and every one of you is that you would have a heart to hear God's word. And when that happens, it's kind of a, a cool thing because um, I can say the wrong thing and you can hear the right thing. <laughs> um, so that's what we're praying is that God would translate through a fallible, um, imperfect um, messenger uh, what he wants you to hear. And you can receive exactly what you need. Um, so um, I just need to clarify one thing or, or announce one thing. Uh, next week would ordinarily be uh, a communion Sunday. We would celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper together. Um, but what we decided this year uh, was that we would do a Monday, Thursday service um, instead of a Good Friday service. How many of you are familiar with Monday, Thursday? Quite a few, okay. Um, so it's not Monday, Thursday, uh, as it sounds like. It's Monday, which means uh, mandate. And it refers to Jesus' mandate to his disciples, to the church, uh, to love one another. And it's, uh, it's basically a uh, service that celebrates the Lord's Supper. So uh, it, it's going to be a special time that we're going to just invite you to come and gather on the Thursday before Easter. Uh, Pastor Seth is going to lead uh, us through that service, and I invite you um, to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, that night. So um, now we're, we're in the last um, major discourse of Jesus in the book of Matthew, and some of you are familiar with the Olivet Discourse. You ever heard of the Olivet Discourse? Um, it is probably right up there with the Sermon on the Mount as, as far as people being familiar with it, um, uh, people, people being interested. It's the last major message of Jesus to his disciples before his crucifixion. Um, now, what it is, is all about this big theological word called eschatology. How many of you have heard eschatology? Okay, what does it mean? Study of the end times. Okay, it's the, it's the science, it's the study, it's the understanding of how things are going to play out in the last days. And so Jesus gets into some interesting uh, details about his return, about the tribulation, about um, the uh, rapture, about the Antichrist, about persecution, uh, about the gospel spreading, about false messiahs, about all these different you know, 
issues, and we tend to dive into the Olivet Discourse looking for all those little details and trying to figure out where they all fit. And we take uh, Matthew 24 and we compare it with Revelation and with First uh, and Second Thessalonians and with Second Peter and all these different little details and try to you know get into all this stuff about eschatology. We, we're we're kind of like apocalyptic students. We love to to dive into that stuff. Some of some people do. How many of you don't love that stuff? You're afraid to say because you know that people will be mad at you. No, uh, they won't be mad at you. But it, we, we do tend to gravitate towards that because it's interesting, but it's also mysterious. Now, here's the thing. The Olivet Discourse um, has to do with a lot of that, but we tend to focus in on some of those details to the extent that we miss the point that Jesus was making. Okay, He had a major point. One particular point that he was making, which was to be ready, and that that point has a lot of uh, important application to it, but the point of being ready, and then we get into the detail, and we actually can miss the point that he was making about being ready because we're so focused on all the things uh, pertaining to eschatology. Now, what we want to do is we want to deal with some of the particular aspects of the, the end times, but we, what we really want to do is we want to take a step back, and we want to see the whole forest and not just focus in on a few trees. We want to understand Jesus' main point, his message uh, in being ready. So let's do that. Let's stand as we read God's Word together. We're in Matthew 24. We're going to pick it up in verse 42. So we're kind of like right about halfway through the Olivet Discourse. Uh, the Olivet Discourse is uh, Matthew 24 and 25, okay? Um, and we're picking it up here, and it says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces, put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Father, uh, <laughs> your word uh, it cuts us to the heart. We see the encouragement that when we trust you, when we persevere, when we're ready, when we're waiting on you, um, we are given the privilege to be over all things. You, you put us in possession of your kingdom. You make us heirs with Christ, that we have a kingdom that we are kings and, and queens, princes and and princesses of, Lord, somehow we are children with Christ, brothers and sisters with your own Son, that we have a guaranteed inheritance of heaven. 
But there's warning and there's um, a charge to be ready that tells us not to miss things, important things. Not to be distracted, not to, to drift in our attention and our faith and our walk and, and uh, our purpose. Lord, help us to see both the encouragement and the warning, Lord, to take it seriously, um, to take it to heart, to let it change us, to let it motivate us uh, to be what you've called us to be, to do what you've called us to do, um, to do it without fear, to do it with absolute confidence, Lord, in you, your presence with us, your power to change not only us, but the world around us and the people around us, Lord, the 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 families that we're in, the workplaces that we're in, the, the communities that we're, we're in, Lord, help us to see how you're going to move through the schools, move through our, our uh, government, through, move through um, all the, the friends that we have, Lord, to change things, to redeem things, to draw them back to you, draw our attention to you. And sometimes the world needs a, a, a stark and severe warning Sometimes uh, we need a, a little encouragement, but uh, we want to be faithful. And so we pray for your spirit to guide and direct us into your truth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So picture this, um, okay, we're, we're approaching Easter right now, and this uh, message um, is given on the Tuesday before uh, the Thursday of the Last Supper. So it says in Matthew uh, 26, in the first couple of verses, that uh, the Passover was a couple of days away. Um, in verse 2, it says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. And so what we know for certain is that this is Tuesday that this, this whole thing happens. Um, now, wh why that kind of matters is because um, Jesus has a, just a few more opportunities to make sure that his disciples understand what it is that they're called to do and to be and, and to warn them. This is what this really is. This is a, a warning to his disciples, which then we take as the church as a warning to us that, the, that as believers, we need to make sure that we're grasping the, the severity and the urgency of what this message really is, because he's saying that uh, you, Christian person, um, need to be watchful, ready, aware, awake, because you're going to be the people that he's referring to here. So Tuesday, um, some things are, are happening, uh, and what was happening was that um, <laughs> there was a little bit of a question uh, about how much of Matthew 23, 24, 25 are all included in uh, the Olivet Discourse, uh, but I'm going to take a step back and say Matthew 23 is um, vitally important to understanding Matthew 24 and 25. How many of you uh, are aware of the seven woes Jesus preached to the Pharisees in Matthew 23? How many of you, that's your favorite chapter in the Bible? Like, I love that. And what, what happens, though, um, Jesus goes to the temple, turns over the tables, he casts out all the, the money changers and all that, but, but one of the things that we don't often um, remember or refer to is, is the fact that Jesus 
He preached a, a face-melting sermon, okay? He, and what it is is a prophetic um, uh, condemnation challenge to the religious leaders of his day in the temple. He's in the temple area with Pharisees, and, and maybe you don't know who Pharisees are, but Pharisees are the group of people who believed that they were getting it as perfectly right as any group of people ever in the history of, of Judaism. Okay? They had committed themselves to living perfectly according to the law. And Jesus is going to tell them that they are, if you go back to chapter 23, that they are um, only doing what they're doing to be seen by others. That's uh, 23 verse 5. The only reason they're doing what they're doing is because they want people to congratulate them and think that they're awesome. Then he says, um, starting in verse uh, 13, gives them seven woes. He says they're hypocrites. Over and over and over, he calls them hypocrites. He says that they are uh, children of hell or sons of hell. Uh, he says that they are blind fools, blind guides. They're blind over and over and over. And he says that they are serpents, that they are a brood of vipers, and he continually just berates them for their pride and for their religion and for the ineffectiveness of their religion to actually produce a good outcome for anyone else. Okay, that's the highlight of, of the, the woes. They're doing everything that they're doing simply for people to honor them, to respect them, to build their pride, but it doesn't help anyone outside of their own image. And he condemns them absolutely. Seven in the Bible is a symbolic number, which refers to what? Completion or perfection. So when Jesus calls out the Pharisees and gives them seven woes, then he's saying you are completely or absolutely or perfectly condemned. And these are religious people. These are people that are trying in their power to get it perfectly right. And you have to take that into account as a Christian to say, if it is possible for these people to get it so absolutely wrong as, as a religious group, is it possible that we as Christians could get it wrong? Get what wrong? Okay, now in reference to this issue, what had they gotten wrong? Jesus. They missed the Messiah. He says to them, you search the scriptures, thinking that by them you have eternal life. You remember the next part? But the scriptures talk about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to be saved. They, they had a, a religion that had somehow become its own thing and had steered them away from the thing that it actually should have pointed to, which was the Messiah, which was Jesus. And they, con they condemned Jesus. They persecuted Jesus. They hated him. They were looking, if, when you read through the Gospels, they are looking for every opportunity possible to kill him. From early on, 
They're looking for ways to get him in trouble, get him in trouble with the government, to get the people to rally, to find some way to persecute, prosecute, and kill him. They miss their Messiah. And what, what Jesus is saying to his disciples in reference to that, as you take that into account, is the church, listen, the church could possibly build a religion that missed the whole point, which is the return of the Messiah. And here's the concern that you and I should have, is that we do not have as much of a hope for the return of Christ as we ought to. We don't think about it that much. We don't talk about it that much. We don't refer to it that much. We don't really have that in the back of our minds. Here's what you, you should read through Scripture and understand this, that the Scripture refers to, prophesies, and declares the return of Christ more than it talks about the first coming of Christ. In other words, most of our emphasis on the urgency of the gospel should be in reference to the immediacy of Jesus's return, that he is going to come back. This world is going to end as you understand it, and he's going to rule, and he's going to reign, and those who don't put their trust in him are lost, not just when they die, but possibly very potentially, that he could return at any moment. But, I mean, the other part of that is you could die at any moment. Right? I mean, people are dropping dead all the time. Not to scare you. You're going to meet the Lord, and are you ready for that? And we put it off, and we don't want to think about it, and we don't want to deal with it, and we want to pretend like it's not going to happen, and it's going to happen, and in one fell swoop, it'll happen for everybody. Just like that. And you might not have the moment to get yourself ready for that event. And so we're always called to be ready. And so he deals with some details of, of all these things that are going to happen. So here's what happens. is It's so weird. I, I think it's kind of weird. Um, he's just torched the Pharisees. I mean, there's no doubt why he's going to be <laughs> crucified in a couple days. Like he has gone to where they have all the power and he's just told them that they are absolutely sons of hell. And they're leaving, you know, he and his disciples to the temple and they go the Kidron Valley and then the Mount of Olives is right there. Okay. They go across and they're kind of up the Mount of Olives a little bit. They turn back and look at the glory of the temple, and it's just amazing. Herod the Great had spent billions in today's dollars to build this fantastic structure, this monument to God. It was one of the wonders of the world. Okay, It was just mind-boggling how amazing and beautiful and the architecture. And you can still go there and see the ruins and still be amazed by some of the things that they did um, just the engineering feat, and then the beauty that they put into it. And they look, they say, "Jesus, look at the temple! Isn't it awesome?" And uh, I just that is weird to me because you would think they'd be talking about Jesus. Do you know they're going to come after you? Like what you just said, they're you're. Of course, he's Jesus. So I mean, he's already walked through crowds of people ready to stone him to death and throw him off cliffs and everything else. So maybe that's not even in their minds that much. But they look at the temple, they say, wow, this is great. And Jesus, in kind of an offhanded way, he's like, yeah, that thing is going to be totally leveled to the ground. Every stone cast down, 
I mean, not one stone is going to be left on another. The, all you're going to have left is the foundation. That's it. That was Jesus prophesying what's going to happen in a generation. 40, 40 years later, that event is going to happen. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be demolished. And one of the things that you have to understand is that the disciples were so shocked by that. It was like, it was hard to grasp. I mean, the temple had already been destroyed once, right? Um, and, and when the Babylonians came in, they destroyed the temple. Uh, the, the Jewish people went to exile in Babylon. They came back and rebuilt the temple. It was just shabby. I mean, it was not much. And then Herod, you know, came along and he's like, I need to make the temple into this great huge, awesome thing. And so he begins to restore the temple to a, a state that it had never been in, even under Solomon. Okay. So the idea that the temple would be destroyed was still very difficult for the Jewish people because they believed God um, kind of, if, if he didn't live there, at least it's where he met people, right? It's where he came to have meetings with human beings, so he accepted offerings, sacrifices, etc., and that's where you went to meet with God. If you were a Jewish person in Israel, you made your trek to Jerusalem um, as often as you could, but you tried to get there at least once a year because you wanted to go and meet with God and have your sins forgiven and have the sacrifices performed on your behalf, right? So theologically, philosophically, it was kind of like, God's going to let that happen again. I mean, I get we, we, it happened once, but again? Um, but again, here's the point that we understand is that the temple is not a building. The temple is the human heart. He made us in his image, meaning that we bear his, his likeness. And then when he puts his Holy Spirit in us, he says, that's, that's the temple. That's the perfect union be, between God and man. That's where I meet you in your heart. It's how you resemble um, the change, the, the, the transformation, the new, new life in Christ is, is that Holy Spirit coming to live in your heart. So they get that eventually. But the other thing is that just the practical issue. You understand how this, this structure, it would be very impractical to destroy it completely? Like who's got the energy for that? <laughs> who's got the motivation to take this beautiful structure and put in the, all the man hours that it would take? You don't have cranes and bulldozers. You got to do this stuff by hand. And these stones are gigantic. The small ones are gigantic. And you're going to topple everything. But the Romans in AD 70, they do exactly that. They come in and they demolish the thing down to its foundation. All you have left is the retaining wall that uh, held the whole thing up. That's it. Everything else is cast down. So what, what you see here is that there's a prophecy. Jesus is, he, he doesn't necessarily need to because he's Jesus. He's already performed all kinds of miracles. He, he's raised the dead. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Um, he was rotting in the grave for four days. And he said, hey, Lazarus, why don't you just go ahead and come on out and live again? And he just waddles out and all his stuff and they have to unwrap him. But he gives this prophecy. This is going to happen. And the disciples say, this must be the end. 
If God's going to allow the temple to be destroyed, it must be the end of the world. It must be the, re- the return of the Messiah. He's going to come and rule and reign, and this is going to be how it's all going to play out, right? In their minds, that's kind of how they were seeming to think about it. And so they, they ask him, Peter and Andrew, brothers, James and John, brothers, they get Jesus aside. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that it was just those four. They get Jesus, they say privately, um, when's that going to happen? What are the signs of your coming? When are the signs of the end of the age? Can you tell us about that? And in uncharacteristic form, because Jesus oftentimes when he had a question, he would ask a question. <laughs> he just, he starts to lay it out. But he's laying it out because he's warning them about the potential danger that they could fall into the same trap as the Pharisees and get so bogged down by religion that they miss the whole point, which is Jesus. So he begins to lay it out and give them all the details of the end. And here's what we see. We see earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, pestilences, famines. Um, you see antichrist rising. You see false teaching. Uh, you see martyrdoms, persecutions like, like you've never seen before. Um, and you see the gospel spreading throughout the world. All those things uh, we see in every age from uh, Jesus until now. We see all those things happening just all over the world. They're constantly happening. They're the condition that we live in, right? But he says they're like birth pangs. They're like uh, contractions before a baby is born. Here's what's going to happen. Yeah, you see these things happening throughout the ages, throughout history, but as we get closer to the return of Christ, they're going to happen more quickly and more intensely. And, and there's a, in a sense, a convergence of these things happening more and more and more and more powerfully and more strongly and more often and more quickly. And you can't hardly catch your breath between the one and the next and the next and the next. And you can do a little study of this on your own, but um, what we see is that these things are happening, all of them more and more and more intensely and more quickly and more frequently in our day. In the last 20 years, we've been seeing all these things happen more and more. And it's like the the contractions are beginning to build up. And then in the end, in the tribulation, we're going to see them just all converge into like a, a, a just storm of these things just being poured out. Now, he says, it's going to be like the days of Noah right? Uh, right before the passage that we read in 24, uh, in 42, 24, 42, um, he talks about concerning that day or hour, no one knows, um, not even the angels in heaven know. And he says, not, not even the sun. So he says, I, I don't even know in my earthly form, I, I think he knows now, but I, I don't know exactly when this is all going to happen. Um, only the Father knows. But it's going to be like the days of Noah. It will, the coming of the Son of Man, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And, and they were uh, unaware until the flood came and uh, swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And here's what, what you understand about that. In the days of Noah, uh, Noah had followed the Lord and the, the world, it says, all their thoughts were only evil all the time. 
that the, the wickedness of the world was so absolute that it was basically Noah alone. He had a wife and he had uh, three sons and their wives, and God used them to repopulate the earth. But the, the, earth's, uh, the world's wickedness was so absolute that they, they were going to be judged. Now, in our day, here's what you understand the connection. Noah was warning them just by his, his life, by his building the ark, and it took a long time. It took 100 years to build the ark, right? He's building the ark. He's, you know, it's in a desert. Like, this is a boat, guys. <laughs> and they were seeing that, and two things happened. One is that they did not believe it because they didn't want to believe it. So as the church proclaims the gospel, then what happens is that the world hears that. You ever see people that hear um, the message of Jesus and, and they don't want to hear it? They don't want to believe it. They don't want to come into contact or into grips or to... It's just like, I, I don't care what you believe, what you think. That's fine for you. We're actually, it used to be, that's fine for you, I'm going to do my thing. Now it's becoming, it's not fine for you. Your, your, your religion is toxic. Your faith is, is bad for other people. Like that, that is actually becoming more and more the movement of our culture that people who don't believe not only don't accept it, but they don't think you should accept it either. It's a, it's a little bit of a twist than where we've been. So there was that going on, but the other thing was that uh, even they didn't understand it, and they didn't understand it because it was taking so long. It's like a hundred years. It's like, eh, yeah, Noah, yeah, you, you think something bad's going to happen? Well, look how long it's taking. So you know, probably not. And Peter even said in his uh, letter, he says that people were mocking. Um, and this is like 30 years after Christ's ascension. They were mocking, saying, uh, where is this coming of the Lord that you keep talking about? This taking so long. They were already beginning to mock. Within 30 years of Jesus going to heaven, they, they were already mocking. How long has it been now? A little bit longer. And it's not just that the world doesn't understand it. It's that the church, the church is losing its sense of urgency because it's been so long. And maybe Jesus won't come back, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to live out my whole life, and I'm going to get to do whatever I want to do and go wherever I want to go and all the, the rest of it. Like We think, like, man, it's this, this thing. It's fine for you know, that to be a sermon once in a while, but it really isn't how we live with the sense of Jesus could return at any moment. And yet, that is exactly what he's saying. We need to live with the sense that he could return at any moment. Right now. And if he did, if he returned, or if he gathered his church in the rapture, would you be ready? Are you ready right now? Or do you want some more time? Is there something you need to do in your heart? Is there some prayer you need to pray? Is there some sin you need to repent of? Is there something that you need to get right? Is there something that you wouldn't want God to take you away right now because there's something just not quite ready? Your household's not in order. Your heart's not in order. There's something in your mind that you're still not ready to give up. 
How long do you think you have? You don't know. But he says, today is the day of salvation, meaning you don't have a promise of tomorrow. You have absolutely no guarantee of this afternoon. So be ready. He proves that um, with some illustrations, okay? What does it mean to be ready? What is he talking about? Chapter 25 is uh, three uh, parables to illustrate what he's talking about in the warning, okay? He's basically just said, be ready at any moment. He's coming, and you need to make sure that your heart is, is right. And then in, in chapter 25, he says, okay, it's kind of like this. The ten virgins. You ever heard this parable before? There's a bridegroom. He's getting ready. He's going to come. You have ten virgins. They're bridesmaids, and they have oil, and they're responsible for lighting the lamps and etc. And five of them have gotten some extra oil. Five of them have not. He says the five that have got extra oil are wise. The five that have not are foolish. And the bridegroom is a long time coming. And they burn out the, the oil in their lamps. They fall asleep. They wake up. Oh, the bridegroom's coming. And the, the wise ones have some extra oil. So they trim their lamp, put some oil in. The other five say, hey, give us some of your oil. And they say, we don't have enough. Go find some. Go buy some. So they go and they try to buy some. By the time they get back, bridegroom has already come. And they're shut out. That's number one. Number two, parable of the talents. And so a talent is like 75 pounds of silver. So just imagine a big bag of silver, okay? Um, and so one guy, one servant gets five bags of silver. Another one gets two. Another one gets one. The one who got five, he went out, invested it, got five more. Now he's got 10 bags of silver. The other one, he had two. He went out and invested. He has four bags. He doubled his investment. The one guy had one bag of silver. He went and dug a hole, buried it. When he heard his master's coming back, he went and dug it up, brought it back to him, said, here you go. This is what belongs to you. And the master takes the one, gives it to the one with 10, says, you out, you in, right? And here's the words that we love to talk about in funerals. Well done, good and faithful servant. We don't love to hear the other part, away from me, I never knew you. That, that part we don't like. Then there's a third uh, parable, and it's the parable of the sheep and the goats. You've heard this? Christian, sheep, non-believers, goats, right? The, the, the sheep on the right, the goats on the left. Now, here's the thing, though. He illustrates it with a point, and he says, um, those of you, okay, the sheep, he says, um, when I needed food, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you gave me some clothes. When I was sick, you gave me some medicine. When I was in jail, you visited me. Okay, he says, all, and then they were like, what do you mean? We didn't do any of that for you. He says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And then to the goats, he says, I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. I was naked, you didn't give me any clothes. I was sick, you didn't give me any medicine. I was, what, in prison, you didn't come visit me. And they're like, what do you mean? We didn't ever see you in, in need. And he says, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. Out. Now, what do these three parables have in common? Put on your thinking cap. Do you know? There are people in each one who are active in their faith. There are people in each one 
who are passive in their faith. There are people that are urgent in their sense of responsibility to God. And then there are people who take religion for granted because it is only religion and it is not a heart change and it is not a life change and it is not a new life in Christ. Those who are in Christ are absolutely guaranteed, confirmed, confident, know that they know that they know that they're saved, that they're going to heaven. Those who are merely religious don't know Christ and are always wondering, have I done enough? Am I doing enough? Am I going to get into heaven? I hope that he accepts me. No one can really know. Hopefully I'm going to get there. God wouldn't throw me in hell, would he? God, I, I believe that I'm being a good person and I'm better than that, that other person and I'm better than I used to be and I'm trying to be good. And what that is is the Pharisees' religion being played out in a Christian way. And it's still lost and it's still untransformed, and it's still unregenerated, and it's still lacking of the Holy Spirit. It has no power. It is not what Jesus came to do. Those people are not waiting for Jesus to return, not hoping and expecting for him to return. Those people are dreading his return. Those who are merely religious do not have any desire to go to heaven. They fear it. They, they dread the idea that there would be a rapture because they have no confidence that they would actually go to heaven. They are in the church. And the church has to be very conscious of the reality that we are dealing with people that are on both levels. Some who are coming to church because they're supposed to come to church because it's their religion and those who love the Lord and know that they're saved because of what Jesus did for them. Amen. And what we should be, ought to be, hopefully are doing is helping those who are merely religious to heed the warning to come into a relationship with their Lord so that they don't have to have that fear and doubt and misunderstanding anymore. Because we all want to go to heaven. We just don't all know that we want to go to heaven. Some people say, I want to go to heaven, just not today. Now, here's what I would say. I want to go to heaven today. I mean, if you understand what heaven is and what it's going to be like for you and me, you want to go there not just someday. You want to go there as soon as possible. Now, that sounds morbid, and if you're offended by that, I apologize. That's not what I'm trying to do, but it's just the sense of confidence that I know that I know that I know, and here's what we have, these absolute things. We know that Jesus is going to return. We know that he's going to rule and reign on this earth. We know that the wicked are going to be judged, and we know that the righteous are going to be rewarded. When I say righteous, I don't mean in your work like the Pharisees. I mean like the people who know that their righteousness comes from Jesus, what he did for them. He is your righteousness. He is your transformation. Now, here's the other side. How do you get ready? How do you get ready? Here, let me tell you a few things. Number one, if you have not at any point intentionally asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, do that. Do it now. Don't wait to the end of the sermon. <laughs> do it now. Ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Ask him to change your heart. Ask him to give you the Holy Spirit. Ask him to 
have grace and mercy on your soul. You can do that quietly in your seat right now. You don't have to wait. It's immediate that he will respond. He promises to respond to that. Don't trust your religion. Don't trust your good works. Don't trust your family. Don't trust your whatever sense of things that you've given for God or sacrificed. It's not about your sacrifice. It's about his for you. And if you don't accept his sacrifice for you, your sacrifice for him means nothing. So that's the first and foremost. Receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Number two, how we get ready is, is we, um, we do not fear. And this is what happens when you receive Christ, is you no longer have fear. Because if I know that I'm going to heaven when I die, then there's nothing else in the world that should cause me to fear. If God is for you, then what can be against you? Or who? I, I have God in me and on my side. I, have, I no longer have any fear about where I'm going. And for a lot of people, it's hard to, to emotionally put yourself there because you don't really know um, until you get to a moment where your life really is on the line. And if your life has ever been on the line and you've had a great sense of peace, then you know that you know that you know. And for the rest who, who haven't had that singular occasion, moment, a, a life-threatening disease, or, or your life flashed before your eyes because of, of a, a serious a mortal danger that you have to walk through, live through, um, then it's a, simply a matter of if you ask yourself, if I were to die today, am I ready? then hopefully what you sense is no fear. And it's no fear because I know the one who saved me. And if I can keep my eyes on him, I know where I'm going. So it's no fear. Um, it's making sure that we keep our hope. Um, hope for the lost. This is really important that the, the church understand the urgency um, of what it means to continue to Witness, proclaim the gospel, share the truth of God's word, um, exalt Christ, and always make sure that we're doing that for the world around us. That everybody in our community has significant value. And what happens, because we do talk about the um, darkness of the world that we live in, we have to talk about sin, we have to talk about the, the direction that our culture is taking okay, into areas that are wicked. We have to talk about these things, discuss these things. What can happen is that the church may begin to feel like it's an us versus them kind of scenario. Like, we're good, you're bad, we're in, you're out, and we, we, God loves us, God hates you, and it's almost like this battle. Like, we, we don't really want those people, you know, in the church or, or whatever, or we, we begin to feel like this animosity for people who don't really believe what we believe, and we have to fight that because the people that God loves, um, we ought to love, and he loves the people that are all around us, people that are lost in sin, people who are doing wicked things, people who are driving the culture in a, in a wrong direction. We still love them. They still have value, and they can be saved. If you can be saved and I can be saved, then they can be saved. And some of you who have sinned much and been forgiven much, love much, understand that. 
Some who have lived a pretty safe and comfortable and, and maybe not really a, an outwardly sinful life, sometimes you get a sense like, what's wrong with those people? Why are they doing that? Why don't they just get it right? And, and so just being careful to make sure that you keep your hope alive for the world around you. The last thing is uh, making sure one of the biggest, I don't know, concerns for the church, I think, is that it will, will lose its love. And at least a significant part of that love is love for one another. Um, what that means is that we tend to, humanly speaking, I'm saved, I'm good to go, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to deal with me, you deal with you, and let's just kind of do our own thing. And I'm not saying that's everybody, and it may not be very many people, but it is a tendency that we, tend, we have. And what we have to make sure is that we are constantly um, caring for, encouraging, uh, loving, motivating, calling out, um, keeping accountable one another within the church body, that we care about one another within the church. What I see in our church, what is beautiful in, in, in my understanding, is that there's so much care going on between one another that the church is, is doing what the church ought to do. And I say that because the... Let me say it this way. Sometimes, and maybe you've come from churches like this, maybe, maybe we've even been a church like this in the past, but sometimes churches um, care more about the institution continuing as an institution than it does about the people who are the church. Does that make sense? First Baptist Church has to be here in 20 years or 50 years, and we kind of, you know identify with the institution instead of the reality of what the church is. The church is you. The church is me. The church is us together. Not this building, not this 501c3, not this institutional thing. Okay, that's, that's nothing. That can be gone in a moment. But you and I are the church. And when we understand that, what happens is that we care about people. We, we invest in people. We are concerned about how they're doing, where they're going, whether they're straying, whether they're staying, you know, all the different things about human life. We're, we're actually invested in helping people grow and mature and be healthy and, 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 and become more like Christ. And as that happens, see, here's what I see is that because you are doing that for each other, I don't get a ton of criticism Maybe I do, and I just don't hear it. I don't know. Um, but I don't get a ton of criticism. Well, pastor didn't come when I was in the hospital. Pastor didn't call me when I was sick. Pastor didn't, you know, send me a letter when this happened. But, you know, I don't, I don't hear a lot of that because the sense and the feeling from within is that we're being cared for. We're caring for each other. And the pastor, Pastor Seth, Pastor Austin, Pastor Luke, Pastor Molly, whatever, we're, we are involved and included in that, but we're not the be-all, end-all of where you think that you have to get your pastoral care, right? Because we're the body, and we're the priesthood of believers, and we need each other. We don't just need an ordained priest to come in and bless us. 
That's a beautiful thing. Here's what happens when that begins to become the organic nature of the church is that the church doesn't have to worry about institutionally surviving. We don't even concern ourselves with that because we continue to grow because people want to be part of a body that cares for each other. It's like the less we worry about that part, the more we concern ourselves with this part, the more that part takes care of itself. And we just are healthy. Not perfect. Keeping our eyes on the right thing. How do you get ready? Make sure your relationship with the Lord is right. Make sure you keep your hope. Make sure you keep uh, no fear. Make sure you keep your love strong. Jesus will take care of the rest. Amen? Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you. Uh, you're, you're doing things that we couldn't have planned if we wanted to. You're, you're moving in people's lives in ways that um, amaze us. You continue to uh, call us out when we're wrong, show us areas of weakness, grow us in, in areas where we need to grow. Um, but we're amazed by you, Lord. And we're just praying that your spirit would continue uh, to move among us, move through us, um, speak not only to us, but through us to the culture around us, Lord, that you would be glorified. Lord, we want you to receive all the glory, to be honored, lifted up, exalted, known, loved, followed, obeyed, trusted. Lord, we pray um, if we can model that, Lord, help us to model it. If we can declare it, help us to declare it. If we can encourage others to, to do the same, Lord, help us to do that. Show us our opportunities. Give us the courage. Help us not to fear anything but you. We honor you. We exalt you. We are in awe of you. In this world, Lord, you said you love this world. You love the people of this world. You died for the people of this world. Help us to die to ourselves enough to do the same, to care enough to keep the urgency of the return of, of Jesus front and center, always ready for your glory, for our sake, and the world's sake around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to just encourage you this morning, if you have not already received Christ, to do so right now. And if you need to come to the altar and in your heart make that an official thing, then we encourage you to do that. Um, if there's anything else that just is keeping you from feeling ready, would you just lay it out before the Lord this morning? Let's stand and sing.